I want to direct your attention this time to John's Gospel and chapter 10. I'm going to read the first 10 verses to you. For those of you who may not be familiar with this part of Scripture, Jesus was talking to a lot of the people, and he was using a picture with which they were extremely familiar. He was talking about the shepherd and the sheep and the sheepfold in which the sheep were kept. And many of the details in what he said here would be extremely familiar to them, but he was drawing out a deep, deep significance from this simple story. John chapter 10, verses 1 through 10. I tell you the truth. The man who does not enter the sheep pen by the gate, but climbs in by some other way, is a thief and a robber. The man who enters by the gate is the shepherd of his sheep. The watchman opens the gate for him, and the sheep listen to his voice. He calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. And when he has brought out all his own, he goes on ahead of them, and his sheep follow him because they know his voice. But they will never follow a stranger. In fact, they will run away from him because they do not recognize a stranger's voice. Jesus used this figure of speech, but they did not understand what he was telling them. Therefore, Jesus said again, I tell you the truth. I am the gate for the sheep. All who ever came before me were thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not listen to them. I am the gate. Whoever enters through me will be saved. He will go in and go out and find pasture. And here's the critical verse for our purposes as we explore the reason for the season. John chapter 10, verse 10. The thief, he went on to say, comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. So there you have it. Jesus came that human beings might have life in all its fullness. One of the difficulties that we have, I think, in reading Scripture, sometimes, particularly if we're familiar with it, is that our eyes and our minds sort of glide over the surface of the sentence. I have found one way of avoiding that is for me to try to imagine that I am seated with the people listening to what was said, or I am with the company of people listening what has been read that what was that was written in other words if a letter came to the community of believers then i would want to hear what was being read from it if somebody was speaking i want to imagine myself having been there in the community now if i do that with john chapter 10 i am hearing jesus say i have come that you might have life and my reaction to that would have been was well, i thought i was alive and I'd have turned to my friend and I said, Are you alive? Turned to my wife. Do you feel that you're alive? Yeah. Well, we think we're alive. What is he talking about? I am come that you might have life. Well, he went on to explain a little bit further using the analogy of the shepherd and the sheep and the robber and the killer and the destroyer and all this kind of thing. And in the end, we read that they did not understand what he was talking about, which is no surprise, really, because I don't know if you've ever thought about this. 
The thing with which you and I are more familiar with than anything else is life. I mean, try to imagine anything without assuming life. You, you, can't, you can't do it. And yet, whilst we are probably more familiar with life than anything else, the reality is that when we try to figure out what it is, we finish up all over the map. It is a mystery. It's a mystery. And so when Jesus said to these people, I have come that you might have life, and they didn't understand, I am not surprised at all, because I don't think we altogether understand what life is all about, and certainly what Jesus was talking about at times. Now, I have a word now for you old timers here. I mean, real old timers. I mean, people, Jill and my age, particularly Jill's age. Because in 1935, there was a couple who were singing a lot of very gooey songs called Nelson Eddy and Jeanette MacDonald. Now, I don't want you to worry about it if you have no idea what I'm talking about. They sang in a movie entitled Naughty Marietta. Naughty Marietta. In actual fact, if you look at the stuff they've got out now, I mean, Marietta looked like a saint compared with this situation now. Anyway, they called her Naughty Marietta then. And one of the songs that they, they sang, don't worry, I'm not going to sing it. I wanted actually to sing a duet with Jill, but she wouldn't do it. But this is what Nelson Eddy and Jeanette MacDonald sang. Ah, sweet mystery of life, at last I found thee. Ah, I know at last the secret of it all. All the longing, striving, seeking, waiting, yearning, the burning hopes, the joys and idle tears that fall. You say, well, I can't wait. These guys have found the mystery of life. Tell me, tell me. All right, I will. For it is love, and love alone the world is seeking. And it is love, and love alone I've waited for. And my heart has heard the answer to its calling. For it is love that rules forevermore. Question, is that the secret of life? Is that the secret of life? We talk about love as much as anything. We sing about love more than anything. But the actual practice of doing it seems to elude us very often. And with the best will in the world, our love seems to be tainted. And very, very often, if we dare to love, we simply make ourselves vulnerable and finish up hurt. I don't think Jeanette MacDonald and Nelson Eddy necessarily got the answer there. So I was a little disappointed with that after they'd said they'd found the sweet mystery of life. So I thought, I'm going to check out the scientists. They'll know. They will understand about life. This is what I read. Life is a condition manifested by growth through metabolism, reproduction, and the power of adaptation to environment. I thought, well... That's, I guess that's right. My metabolism seems to be working all right. I put all kinds of food in it, so it burns up and produces energy. I can actually get up and stand up unaided and preach. Yes, my metabolism working. Reproduction? Well, look at all these grandkids. Yes, that's <laughs> obvious. 
The power of adaptation, yeah, I'm a Brit, I'm in America, I'm learning to adapt, yes. There's no question about it. When it comes to life, that I've got it nailed down. But is that life? Is, is that all that life is? No, this is what we call reductionism. Re re reductionism is simply taking something and trying to explain it in very simple terms, but clearly missing out the, the significance, the uniqueness of it. Like the couple who went to a symphony concert, she wanted to go, he didn't want to go. They were playing a Beethoven violin concerto, among other things. She was ecstatic about it. It was absolutely wonderful, gorgeous, gorgeous music. He, he went to sleep. You see, in the end, she wakes him up. She said, aren't you enjoying this? He said, what's to enjoy? What, what, what's to enjoy? It's nothing but sound waves bombarding my eardrums, and these sound waves are created by dragging horsehair across catgut. Well, that's one way of describing a Beethoven's violin concerto. Is that what it is? Is it simply scraping horsehair across gut gut and producing sound waves that bombard eardrums? No. Is life simply a matter of metabolism, simply adaptation to environment, simply the ability to reproduce? I don't think so. What we need is a poet. Because poets are able to look beyond what the scientists see. I mean, the scientists think of equations, they think of test tubes, they think if I can't touch it, if I can't taste it, I can't smell it, it doesn't exist. The poet understands that there are words and there are images and there are concepts. So here's a great poet. He was a British aristocrat. He was born not with a silver spoon in his mouth, he was born with a silver spoon in both sides of his mouth. He was incredibly gifted, and he was wonderfully endowed. I speak, of course, of Lord Byron. He talked about life, and it was on his 36th birthday. This is what he wrote. My days are in the yellow leaf. The flowers and fruits of love are gone. The worm, the canker, and the grief are mine alone. Now he's doing a whole lot better than the scientists who can only talk about metabolism, reproduction and adaptation. He is now using images. Look at this, yellow leaf, flowers, fruits, worms, cankers, grief. He is getting into the substance of life and the net result of it is this, at 36 years of age with absolutely everything, he's saying, I have nothing. Is that life? I thought, no, what we need is a philosopher. So I turned my attention to one of the sharpest, keenest, mathematical, philosophical minds of the 20th century, Bertrand Russell, who became Lord Russell. I was very, very impressed by what he said. He said, my life is governed by three passions, the longing for love, the search for knowledge, and unbearable pity for humanity. I thought, wow, this guy's on track. This man is taking life very, very seriously. He is bringing his brilliant intellect, he is bringing his high-intensity emotional capacities and his remarkable energy to bear. He is longing for love, he is searching for knowledge, and he has an unbearable pity for humanity. And I thought to myself, I wonder how he did 
Well, this is how he did. He wrote at the end of his life, Only on the foundation of unyielding despair can the soul's habitation henceforth be safely built. Well, what do you make of that? Well, the simple fact of the matter is this. The longing for love took him into one failed marriage after another. And these were interspersed by all kinds of affairs that were disastrous. Just longing for love, never finding it. His search for knowledge led him in the end to rabid atheism. He didn't believe in anything much at all in the end. And his unbearable pity for humanity left him in total despair, for he said, it doesn't matter how much energy and ingenuity I invest in trying to meet the needs of humanity, nothing changes. And he finished up a despondent, broken man. So I look at the scientist, and I look at the poet, and I look at the philosopher, and in the end I say, I don't think they've got it. I don't think these guys have got it. Fortunately, there's Hollywood and Forrest Gump. (laughs) And Forrest Gump, of course, as we all know, had something profound to say on the subject of life. This is what he said. My mama said, life is like a box of chocolates. How do you like the accent? My mama said, my life is like a box of chocolates. You never know what you're going to get. That's profound. (laughs) But let's face it. Let's face it. Far more people are listening to Hollywood than are reading Byron and are studying Russell and are paying any attention to what the scientists are saying. Hollywood has got it for many, many people. And the reality is this. The conclusion is this. Life is a crap shoot. It's like a box of chocolates and you never know what you're going to get. Is that the best we can do? I am not surprised that when Jesus said, I have come that you might have life, the people had no idea what he was talking about because if he came today, a lot of people would have no idea what he is talking about. You see, the problem is this, defining life. There were some philosophers who got together at a special meeting and the purpose of the meeting was to find the meaning of life, but they were not particularly successful because they couldn't agree on the meaning of meaning. How in the world are you going to find the meaning of life if you can't agree on the meaning of meaning? Reminds me of Bill Clinton, who said it all depends what the meaning of is, is. (laughs) If, if If we simply go round and round like this, where are we going to get with these things? I would suggest that we should be very much alert to what the poets are saying. We should bear in mind what the philosophers are saying. We should be astute enough to know what the scientists are saying. We should put the filter of what Hollywood is saying through all these things and then make absolutely certain we're not neglecting what the scriptures say. And if we look very seriously at what John 10.10 says, in its broader context... The simple fact of the matter is this, that John uses the term life more than any other writer in Scripture. And he starts out in John chapter 1 
making two definitive statements, speaking of Jesus through a metaphor, calling him the Word. And he says three things about the Word, that in the beginning, whatever that was, the Word had already been in a state of continuous existence. Secondly, the Word in the beginning had already been in communion with God. And thirdly, the Word was God himself. All right, that's all introduction. In verse 3, he then says, Through him, that is the word, through him all things were made, and without him nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. What is he talking about? Who is the word who was in the beginning in a state of continuous existence, who was in communion with God, who was God himself. The clue is, he then says, the word became flesh. Uh Uh-huh. Now we know what he's talking about. He's talking about Jesus. And this is what he says about Jesus. All things were made through Jesus. And in Jesus is life itself. Two definitive statements. The first statement is this, all that is, all the being that is being at the present time, all that you can see was created by him and for him. That is a biblical scriptural statement. You either apprehend it by faith or you reject it by faith. That's your decision. Secondly, life, whatever it is, does not originate in Christ for Christ does not originate. Christ is self-existent in the Father. And the Father has life in himself and has granted that Jesus should life have life in himself. Life is part and parcel of whom the eternal God is. We can never begin to understand life if we simply stick with the scientist, the philosopher, the poet, and Hollywood. What we need to recognize is that from a biblical point of view, the essence of life is found in the being of God. That's what it says. Now then, it goes a step further. What that means is that all created things depend on God for existence. And all animate things, that is, things that are alive, depend on on God in Christ for life itself. That's the starting point. That's the starting point. Now, at that point, many, many people leave us. They say, I don't buy that. I don't buy that. We must say goodbye to them if that's what they choose. If we take a step further, however, we have to ask this question. If it is true, if it is true that God in Christ created all things and imparted life to them, then why has Jesus come to give us life? If he already gave it to us, why has he come to give it to us? And the answer is that we have forfeited life. How did that happen? Well, in the graphic, picturesque language of Genesis, don't get hung up on the literary genre here, just get hold of the essence of it. The essence of it is this, that God created humanity, imparted life to them. This is how it puts it. God breathed into their nostrils the breath of life, and mankind became living 
beings. That's pretty straightforward. That's what he's saying. That God himself is the origin of humanity's life. Okay? Then this is what God said. Now then, this life that you've lived that originates with me, you've got to understand it is all about relating to me. And I am a God of love. And the relationship that you and I, God and humanity, are to have is a relationship of love. Now, you cannot coerce love. You cannot force love. Many a guy has looked at a beautiful girl and wished that she would love him and has tried all kinds of ways of doing it, and he can't do it if she doesn't want to do it. You cannot coerce love. You choose to love, which means... If God is love and has created us to love, he's got to give us the ability to choose, which means he's got to give us a will. If he's given us the ability to choose and a will to do it with, it's a nonsense to give us a will without giving us options. So he gives us options. Now, people at this point say, oh, well, why would God give us a free will and give us options and if knew perfectly well we were going to choose and the whole thing would go wrong? Why did he do that? And the answer, of course, is this. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. But what I do know is this. If I consider all the alternatives, and I hope you've done this, if I consider all the alternatives, quite frankly, I can't come up with a better one. Neither can anybody else. So we'll leave it there for now. Because the, the, the situation is this. God creates capable, people capable of loving him, a loving God. He's breathed life into them so that they enjoy a relationship with him. And now they've got a choice. And the choice is very simple. Show you love me by doing what I say. And he gives them a choice. He says, here's the choice. It's very simple. It's not difficult. Here's paradise. Look at it. It's gorgeous. Paradise. It is absolutely gorgeous. Oh, by the way, there's one little tree in the middle of it. Don't touch it. Just don't touch it. It's a test. That's all. It's just a test. All I'm saying is this. I want you to love me, and I want you to choose to love me, and I want you to show that you've chosen to love me by obeying me. That's all. Oh, he said, by the way, if you disobey me, you'll die. You'll forfeit life. And you know what humanity did, and you know what humanity continues to do. We've got paradise available, and we've got one thing that he says don't do, and we said I'd rather disobey than obey. I'd rather be independent than dependent. I'd rather go my own way than your way. I'd rather be God than have you, God. And we're still doing it. Now, the Apostle Paul summarizes this very, very straightforwardly in Ephesians. This is how he describes it. He says to the Ephesian Christians, you were dead. That's another way of saying you forfeited life. How did they forfeit life? By transgressions and sins. They took the one tree... And they said, I don't want to obey you. I don't want to yield to you. I want to be God. I want to do it my own way. Transgression and sins. He said, okay, you do it, you die. 
and there is a severing of the relationship between humanity and God. And that's only the beginning. When there's a severing of the relationship between man and God, we are cut adrift. And any boat that is cut adrift is a victim of the winds and the currents and will head for the rocks. And that is precisely what it says. You were dead in trespasses and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world. What are the ways of this world? The ways of this world are the mores of the culture of which we are a part. And whence cometh this culture? A lot of this culture comes from people who are also living in disobedience, who are also adrift. We have an adrift culture in many, many ways, and we live in it, we listen to it, we watch it, we breathe in its stuff all the time. It governs all kinds of things that everybody is doing become more important to us than anything else, and we find ourselves dead to God and drifting. Not only that, Paul goes on to say this. Not only did we follow the ways of this world, but the ways of this world are presided over by the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who creates a disobedient attitude. And in addition to that, he says, and we lived gratifying the cravings of a sinful nature, following its desires and thoughts. We have not only adrift in the ways of this world, presided over by the enemy of our souls, but we have in us a traitorous spirit that has a perverted mindset, that has perverted desires, and therefore makes wrong decisions. And the net result is we're dead. Or if you like, we may eventually finish up by saying, my days are in the yellow leaf. The flowers and fruits of love are gone. The worm, the canker, and the grief are mine alone. And Jesus said, I've come to fix it. He has described beautifully and dramatically, and Paul has amplified the description He has described beautifully and graphically the work of the thief and the killer and the destroyer. And he says, in antithesis to what he did, I've come to give you life. Now, if you go back to John chapter 10, you will find that he says three things within a couple of verses. That is not idle repetition. When he says three things in two verses... Sit up and take notice. And this is what he said. The good shepherd gives his life for the sheep. The good shepherd gives his life for the sheep. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. And then he adds, and I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it again. All right? So here we have the picture. Now, this is what Scripture says. The wages of sin is death. Or if you like, If you eat of that tree, you'll die. In other words, if you disobey, you forfeit the relationship with God. You forfeit life. Okay? Wages of sin. Jesus said, I've come to fix it. And this is what I will do. 
If the wages of sin is death, I will garnish your wages. I will collect your indebtedness. God, who is judge of my sin, will assume the role of victim. He will pass sentence, and in Christ, he will endure the sentence himself. He will collect the wages. And that is why the good shepherd gives his life for the sheep. And this is what he said. No one takes it from me. Don't think that for a minute. No one takes it from me. I have power to lay it down. We know he did. For when on the cross he died, he didn't go out with a whimper. He went out with a loud voice. And he said, tetelestai, which means accomplished, finished. Everything that I came to do, I've done. Tetelestai. And then he said to his spirit, you can go now. And he dismissed his spirit and he laid down his life. It was purely voluntary. Not only that, he says, the good shepherd gives his life for the sheep. And that little word for means instead of, on behalf of, hooper. It is a critically important little word. And it is telling us that the death of Jesus was not only purely voluntary, it was totally vicarious. It was instead of, it was on behalf of those who are spiritually dead. But he says, I have authority to lay it down and I have authority to take it again. And on the third day, he rose again from the dead. And in rising again from the dead, this is what it says, through death, assuming his resurrection, through death, he destroyed him that has the power of death, that is to say the devil, and delivered all those who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject of bondage. In other words, he clubbed the robber. He gave the thief his comeuppance and he destroyed the destroyer. And he says, and I live triumphant. It was the life of God, the victim, was voluntary and vicarious and victorious. And now he says, in all the power of his resurrection, here I am. I came to give you life, and I am the resurrection and the life. And if you receive me, you receive life. If you receive life in me, you receive resurrection life. And this resurrection life is the life of the age to come. It is the life of the eternal one. It is life eternal, which has as one component, a life that is forever and forever and forever and forever and forever. But more important than in the quantity of it, the quality of life eternal is that it is the life of the eternal one. And Jesus says, here I am. And there you are. You forfeited life through sins and transgressions. You're adrift. You are subject to the supervision of the enemy of your soul. You are susceptible to all the winds and currents of your culture. You come under the righteous indignation of a holy God. The enemy of your souls is killing you. 
is destroying you, is robbing you, is robbing you. And I came to save you. And I came to give you life. And I am the life. One of the things I love about Milwaukee, and I really do, I love the Milwaukee folks. I love the fact that when it snows, they don't curl up and die. I mean, I am totally amazed that they go to Lambeau Field and there isn't an empty seat in just unbelievable weather. They go and sit on upturned buckets on frozen lakes. I, I, I love it. I, I think it's nuts, but I, they, they do it. They do it. There's a, a sort of a ruggedness about them. There's a down-to-earthedness about them. If I'm going to be stuck in a snowdrift anywhere in the world, I want to see a good old blue-collar Milwaukee guy come up in his four-wheeler. That's what, I, that's what I want to see. I don't care who else shows up at all. And I, I love that underneath the veneer of these, you know, these, these Miller-drinking Milwaukee folks, under, underneath the veneer, there's a kind of a religious streak in most of them. And if you, if you can sit down and talk to them, and they will eventually, they'll talk to you. This is the sort of thing they say. You know what? Never, never, <laughs> never pretended to be an angel. Never did. Done some bad stuff in my time. But I'll tell you what. When I go to meet the great big Packer fan in the sky, <laughs> when I go to stand before him, you know what I think he's going to say? I think he's going to say, well, look, if I take all the bad stuff you did and all the good stuff you did, I think the good stuff just slightly outweighs the bad stuff. And I think he'll say, come on in. So I'd say, well, what you really think is that when you die, you'll get eternal life. They say, yeah. I think so. I said, well, in other words, your approach is that eternal life is something you get when you die if you're good enough. Yeah. Right. Okay. Do you know what Jesus said? No, I don't know what he said. Well, he was an expert on the subject. And this, this is what he said. He didn't say eternal life is something you get when you die if you're good enough. What he said was eternal life is someone you get now before you die when you're not good enough. So which do you think is right? Is eternal life something you get when you die if you're good enough? Or is eternal life someone you get now before you die when you're not good enough? That's a big decision. But I know which one I go with. With all due respect to my old Milwaukee inhabitant friends, I'd rather believe Jesus. Some people say, you telling me that you can actually believe that you have eternal life before you die? Yeah. And they say, I think that's arrogant. I say, I understand that too. But I think it's more arrogant to think you know better than Jesus. It's a whole lot more arrogant to think that you know better than Jesus. And you see, the whole point is this. The essence of eternal life is that life is found in him. But if you're estranged from him, by definition, you're estranged from life. 
But if you allow him, once crucified, ever risen, in the power of his spirit to come into your life as good shepherd, and you'll hear his voice, and you begin to buy into what he says, and you increasingly follow his lead, and you identify with his cause, and you become his disciple, and the learner becomes more like the teacher, and you are changed into his disciple, guess what? You're on the road of life in all its fullness. Life in all its fullness. And that's why he came. That's why he came. The robber, he'll kill you. He'll rob you. He'll destroy you. Jesus came that you might have life and have it to the full. One last thing. Years ago, when Jill and I used to work among the kids in England, one of the things I used to do occasionally was I'd take a pound bill out of my pocket, pound note we call them, and I'd hold it up and I'd say to the kids, anybody who wants this, come and ask for it and you can have it. You see, well, there were shy British kids, so they'd all sort of look at each other and then one would make a dart and then sit down again. And then suddenly one would rush out and the whole torrent of them would come as a big mad scramble. And the first kid there would say, would, would come and get hold of the note. I said, hey, what are you doing? What are you doing? I want that, want that note. Well, what did your mother teach you to say? Please. Well, why should I give you that note? You promised. All right, I did. Well, say, please. Please, can I have that note? I give it to him. I said, now what did you say? Thank you. Good, your mother trained you well. You say, please and thank you. This is what you say to Jesus. Jesus said, all right, all right, you forfeited life. You know it. You've got all kinds of evidence for it. You don't understand fully that he died for you and rose again to live in you. You can't understand it fully because your mind is finite. And this is infinite truth. You can't understand it perfectly because your mind is not perfect. But even though you don't know it fully and even though you don't know it perfectly, you can know it's true. And so you respond and you say, I believe it is true that you said that if I trust myself to you, you'll give yourself to me and in you I'll find life. Jesus said, that's right. Okay. Jesus, that's what I want. Jesus says, all right, what did your mother teach you to say? She told me to say, please, all right, say it. Please, Lord. Please, Lord. Now what did your mother teach you to say? Thank you. Well, say it. Thank you, Lord Jesus. You see, he said, I came that you might have life. Well, ask him. And then thank him. And then start to live one long thank you. Let's pray together. Here's a prayer. It's a please prayer that will morph into a thank you prayer. Dear Lord, I don't understand this completely, and I'm sure I haven't got it perfectly. But I've got a sense within me that it rings true. And so this is what I'm asking you. In light of the fact that I know there's a lot 
that is not right in my life. And I believe that you died and rose again. And that you have promised to come into the life of those who will yield to you. I conclude that I need you and I want you. Therefore, I'm asking you, please, please enter into my life. Forgive my sin and lead me into fullness of life. Life eternal. It's a simple prayer. It has profound significance. And I realize that if I'm really to believe that you've done what you promised, I have no alternative but to say thank you. And to begin to live a life of thank you. And generate within me the gratitude attitude. The life of the redeemed disciple. Thank you for hearing this prayer. Thank you for answering it. In Jesus' name. Amen.